We are reading together in the scriptures of the New Testament, uh, the second half uh, of our Bibles, uh, the book of Revelation. Uh, We want um, to read, first of all, from Revelation chapter 1, and in the church uh, Bible, or the Bible provided by the church, it's page 1233, page 1233. John is now an old man, and uh, we believe he's the last surviving apostle. Uh, He has been holding fast as the apostle of love, uh, communicating the love of God and Christ with great diligence and faithfulness. He's now been banished to this island uh, because of his faith in Christ. They're trying to cut him off, as it were, the... Uh, the powers of that day, the power of Rome, uh, cut him off from uh, fellowship with God's people and fellowship with God himself. But what wonderful, wonderful experiences John was brought into on the island of Patmos by his God uh, and what glorious things he glimpsed um, and we are enriched uh, by uh, the injustice and iniquity of man. And isn't that a wonderful thing? That God causes the very wrath of man to praise him. So let's be encouraged by that uh, as we remember that and as we read now. Uh, Page 1233. I, John, Revelation 1 verse 9. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said, Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned round to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw the seven golden lampstands. (coughs) And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash round his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen. What is now and what will take place later, 
the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and of the seven golden lampstands, is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And now, uh, page 1235, Revelation chapter 3 and verse 7. And this is the letter to the church in Philadelphia, the sixth of the seven churches. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens no one can shut, and what he shuts no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I also will keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. Well, let us turn now to the passage that we read in Revelation chapter 3 and um, page 1235 and Revelation chapter 3 uh, and verse uh, 7. We're all familiar with reports that are given from time to time. The children at school receive reports um, at the end of the term, at the end of the year. Um, sometimes a government will launch a report. The report is into some maybe disaster that has happened uh, or some weakness that has been shown up in some aspect uh, of uh, public service, the health service or the police service or whatever. Uh, and these reports come uh, to address um, what are the strengths and what are the weaknesses. A good school report will not just focus on a child's weaknesses, but will commend him or her for their strengths. Uh, and uh, we know that uh, usually in reports that are done on behalf of government, there's an attempt to recognise where there are strengths. Well, the, um, these seven letters that we have in Revelations, chapters 2 and 3, 
are a bit like a government report or an end of school year report. Christ looks into seven uh, ancient churches, churches at the end of the first century, churches in um, Asia Minor, uh, churches some of which have been planted uh, by the Apostle Paul. And now John is given this revelation of God and the Lord Jesus speaks to these churches. And he says, here are strong points. And here are weak points. And here are areas that need to be addressed and improved on if your church is to have a future beyond this present day and generation. Uh, this evening we want to look at his message to the church in Philadelphia. Uh, Revelation chapter 3 from verse 7 uh, through uh, to uh, verse uh, 13. Now Philadelphia was a large and prosperous city. Philadelphia lay on an ancient and important trade route. It was a place that was uh, up and coming, a place that was doing well in the eyes of the world, sometimes described as the gateway to the east. So people travelled through the city when they were travelling eastward. The name, of course, means brotherly love. And so that was a focus uh, that was there in the city. We're a city that loves one another. And yet it was a city that knew very little of the brotherly love that Scripture commends. And that is... Uh, the outworking of the love of God in our hearts and lives. This city was destroyed by a severe earth earthquake uh, around A.D. 17. Uh, and um, history has it that there was only one pillar left standing uh, of a significant and important building. And so we want to look this evening at verse 8 in particular. Where Christ now speaking into the church, the small church in this vast secular city, he says to the church, I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door and no one can shut it, for you have little strength. You have kept my word and have not denied my name. And I want to take as my text this evening those words, I know that you have little strength. I know you have little strength. The church with little strength. And I'm sure we all can identify with that. To one degree or another. Uh, we often say to ourselves, perhaps we say to each other, we're not a big group. We're not a big denomination. Um, we sometimes um, say of our church planting works, whether it's in Ireland or France or wherever, um, it's a small work. And sometimes uh, we can feel apologetic and embarrassed about the fact Almost embarrassed about the fact 
that we're small, that we're not strong and vibrant. And yet, I want us to see tonight that Christ uh, does not um, ridicule, he doesn't despise, he doesn't cast aside a church that has little strength. Or indeed the individual Christian who says, I'm not very strong. I'm not very effective. I don't feel very powerful or influential in this world, in this workplace where I am. You young people in the schools that you're going into in a week's time. In the community in which we live, the community in which we're trying to reach tomorrow. What are we on this week? There's 30,000, 40,000 people in the borough of Carrickfergus. And here we are, 20-something members of a local congregation. We have little strength. But let us never use that um, or allow that uh, to discourage us or to hold us back. Uh, remember that phrase by the great father of Baptist missions. We're to expect great things of God and we're to attempt great things for our God. And we can do great things through our God. Well, let's look at this then under four headings this evening. First of all, Christ uses weakness. He uses weakness. Notice the words in verse 8. You have little strength. It's the word from which we get dynamite. You know what happens if you've got dynamite? It blows things apart and it shakes things up. Well, uh, Christ looks at this church and he says, there's not much dynamite about you. Um, and it's not a criticism. It's a recognition of the reality. Uh, and uh, he will show this church that how he's going to use them. Um, it's good to be realistic about our churches. It's good to be realistic about our own lives. And this congregation is located in a large city of population. Yet she is noticeably small in numbers. There are plenty of people to reach with the gospel in Philadelphia. But Philadelphia is not an easy situation in which to witness to Christ. And I'm sure that's something that resonates with us here this evening, wherever we're from, wherever we're working. There's plenty of interest in religion in Philadelphia. And in our Western world today, there is an increasing interest in spirituality and in religion. You go into a bookshop, uh, and if you were to ask, take me to, uh, have you any spiritual books? They would take you to a section where there are lots of books on spirituality. But there's not much true faith. The city is renowned in its day for its temples and religious festivals. This city in Philadelphia has a sizable Jewish community. And we might have thought, surely that's a place of opportunity. But even among the Jews, with all their former blessings, the church isn't making big inroads. The small membership she has is mostly drawn, as was true of uh, most congregations in the New Testament, mostly drawn from the lower sections of society, the poor, the slaves, the uneducated, 
women who were despised in that society. There are no big names on the members' roll. You'll not find any Roman senators. You'll not find any leading businessmen or merchants. No university dons. No icons in Greek sport uh, and games. You compare this church at uh, Philadelphia to the church at Corinth. She's not overflowing with gifts. She's not overflowing with confidence. She feels she has few spiritual resources for the massive task of bearing witness to Christ in this vast needy community. You have, I know, you have little strength. Christ doesn't falter for that. He doesn't criticize her for being weak. He doesn't say you haven't been trying hard enough. He doesn't say you should have more fruit for all the years of labor that you put in. You should be bigger and stronger. Is that not encouraging to you tonight? In your life as a Christian, is it not encouraging tonight uh, to us as congregations? It's not a reason to be complacent. No, no. But it is encouraging. Christ is not disappointed with a church that is numerically small, a church that is not bubbling over with talent. See, in our world today, in our Western world, big is beautiful. That's why people love the Tesco's and the Asda's and the B&Q's. The big shop is in and the small corner shop is out. Strength impresses. The danger is, for us as Christians and churches, that we fall for that lie. And we fall into that way of thinking. And we begin to think size and numbers and programs and resources. And yes, our image and sound bites and ability. That's what counts. Christ says no. Doesn't disregard a church simply because she is weak. And as we think about our week of outreach. And those of you who are going to be at the cold face of that. Um, whether as members or as go-teamers, let's remember that he uses what is weak, uh, what doesn't have a lot of strength. Uh, and as we come to serve Christ this week in outreach, and as we seek to do so um, now in the months which lie ahead, in our Friday night clubs and working with individuals and all kinds of ways, perhaps with thoughts of our own weakness. We're not up to it. We're inadequate. Perhaps you've signed up to something this week to do and you haven't done it before and you're thinking in recent days, why did I ever say I would do that? I am not up to it. You have little strength. Christ chooses the weak things to shame the strong, the foolish to shame the wise. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 27. So he uses weakness. Let's notice then secondly. Christ seeks faithfulness. He seeks faithfulness. What does Christ look for in a church. If it is not size and strength. Uh, and 
um, resources and programs and sound bites. Verse 8. I know your deeds. That's what he looks for. Deeds. I know your works. You have kept my word and have not denied my name. And my name means my person. Whenever we come across that phrase, my name, it sums up the person of God or the person of Christ. You've not denied me, Christ might have said. Yes, Christ looks for faithfulness. Young people changing school or going into a new class uh, this week. What is it that Christ is looking for you in your new class, and your new school? He's looking for faithfulness. For you just to keep on being um, his witness, his child. Yes, not being complacent, but growing and maturing and doing what you ought to do. Taking your stand, speaking for him, honouring him in your relationships. He looks for faithfulness. And that's what he looks for in us in any of our lives. And where you are, whatever your calling is, whatever it is you go out to do this week, is your vocation. Christ is looking simply, he's looking significantly for faithfulness in your vocation and in my vocation. He knows every work, every act this church has done in his name. He knows every insult she has borne for his truth. Every time she's been laughed at, and mocked every time as it were a door was slammed in her face every time someone has said you don't believe that do you that's not modern that's not with it he knows every sacrifice she has made when she said though I would like to do this today I am going to do that today for the kingdom of God He knows every occasion she's spoken the gospel to others. And Christ says to you and me this evening, who love him as our Savior and serve him as our Lord, he says, I know, and the word your is singular, one after another, wherever you're sitting tonight, you as an individual, I know your personal, your individual works. Christ knows every prayer you offer, every meal you provide to someone in need, every shoulder that you offer for people to lean on, every visit you make to a home or to someone in sickness. He knows every lesson taught in a Sabbath school. Every conversation had in the community. Every act of friendship. Every word of encouragement. Every visitor welcomed. Every tear shed. I know your works. And we've got to understand it hasn't been easy for this little church in Philadelphia. Because though the Jewish community you would have expected to be a ready and fertile ground for the gospel... It has been a place of intense opposition. Look at how he describes the Jews. Verse 9. A synagogue. Literally is a congregation. A gathering together of Satan. 
That's a shocking statement for Christ to make about Jews who were historically and for millennia called the people of God. But these folk who are historically the people of God, they're now the enemies of God. They're the synagogue of Satan. As Christ said to the Jews, you are of your father, the devil. These people had known so much of God's blessing for centuries. How could they be doing the work of the devil? Well, look at verse 9. Who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars. You see, the Jews in Philadelphia, the end of the first century, have lost sight of the Christ from their Judaism. What was it that made the Jews God's chosen and special and treasured people in the Old Testament? It was their expectation of the Christ. It was their looking to the Messiah and trusting in him who would come to save them from their sins. But you see, this generation of Jews, they have vacated Christ from their religion and their Judaism. And in Judaism or Christianity or the church, if we exit Christ from our Christianity, from our families, if you exit Christ and keep him out and push him to the side and keep him out of your personal life, then you are of the devil. The devil is your father. And you are serving the devil. And you need to repent. And if you're not a Christian here tonight, that is God's call uh, to you and Christ upon your life. Repent. Instead of denying the Christ, receive him. Instead of resisting him, yield to him. Instead of attacking Christ's church, Join Christ's church. And that's, the, that's what these Jews need to do. They have lost touch with God. They twist God's word. They resist God's will. They have no, they've rejected Jesus Christ. And they uh, are then of the synagogue of Satan. And so it is in that context that this church labours. It's in that context in which Christ seeks faithfulness. And one of the tragedies of the Christian church in the Western world today, Protestantism and Roman Catholicism, Orthodox, whatever name or, or label of Christian church, in the huge parts of it, Christ has been driven out. And he's been lost sight of. Uh, and so, uh, for those in the church who do love Christ, and who do proclaim Christ, it is in that context, and against that backdrop, that we have to, and we're urged to be faithful here. I know your works, even though you're living uh, with a synagogue of Satan around you. Let's notice then thirdly how not only does Christ use weakness, not only does Christ seek faithfulness, 
but he also provides opportunities. He provides opportunities. We might rightly ask, what are the prospects for a church that is small? A church that holds resolutely to Christ and says, Christ is Lord, not Caesar. And that's why John had been banished, because he said Christ was Lord, refused to say Caesar is Lord. What happens, what are the prospects for a church that refuses to alter her beliefs and practices to be shaped by the Greek gods and the Roman gods of that day, by the gods of our day? Are churches going to be doomed to extinction, such churches? Are they going to get smaller and smaller in size and fewer and fewer in number? Are we to have a kind of siege mentality? Well, it could happen that the churches will get smaller and smaller and fewer and fewer in number. Christ could remove the witness of his church from a community, from a town, from a nation, from a continent, and leave people to his righteous and holy judgment. But that is not what Christ is doing in Philadelphia. For Christ declares, verse 8, See, I have placed before you an open door and no one can shut. In verse 7, there's this reference as well. These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. Christ holds the key. Christ unlocks. Christ opens the doors. It's Christ who opens the hearts of men and women to repent and believe, as he did with Lydia in Philadelphia. Sorry, and 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 uh, wasn't Philadelphia? Where am I thinking of? Philippi. Thank you, thank you, Philippi, Philippi. And it's Christ who opens doors, not just to the doors of people's heart. A picture of Helmand Hunt is so wrong where it shows Christ helplessly standing outside and the, the handle of the door is on the inside. It's, it's wrong. It's against scripture. It's Christ who opens the door and he walks into people's lives uh, through the gospel as he calls men and women to repent and believe in him. And it's true not just of the individual, it's true in communities. It's true in our nation. Why, why has there been great blessing in the past and we can look back to times when the gospel was triumphing throughout our nation and other nations? It was because Christ was opening a door of opportunity in that door in that day and generation. And so here in this city of Philadelphia, Christ has already opened wide a door of opportunity to the church for the gospel. And it cannot be closed. Can't be closed. Man can't close it. Caesar can't close it. The Jews can't close it. The Greek gods can't close it. The Roman gods can't close it. He's going to bless the faithfulness of this small church that has been tested so severely. And you see, if Christ were to open a fresh door for the gospel in our community, the borough council will not close it. Downing Street will not close it. Europe will not close it. 
Because they cannot resist the king of kings. And it's for this little church in Philadelphia, bright days and better days lie before it. Men and women and boys and girls will be saved. They will be baptized. They will be added to the membership of the church. The worship services uh, will be fuller. Prayer meetings will be, will be larger. There will be days of blessing and fruitfulness in the life of the church. Because Christ creates the opportunity. And he's going to do it among the Jews. He's going to do it among those who previously have stubbornly rejected him. Look at verse 9. I will make those who are the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. What a beautiful picture. Those who hate Christ and those who hate us because we love Christ and speak of Christ. When the gospel takes hold of their hearts and lives, when Christ opens the door, what do they do? They come and they fall down and they worship. Isn't that what happens to Saul of Tarsus? On that road to Damascus, when Christ shone the light around him, he fell down. And he rose up a worshipping man. And a man who loved God's people, who loved Christ's church, and who acknowledged the love of Christ for his church. Now, how does this all apply to us then? Well, is this not what we should be praying for? Should this not be the daily longing of our hearts? Is it what we beseech Christ for day after day? Lord Jesus, where you have placed me in my school, where you have put me in my work, where you have brought us together as a church in this town, the things that we seek to do, the witness we seek to bear, Lord Jesus, it's of no significance, it's of no worth unless you are opening the door of people's hearts and people's homes and of this town and this borough and this land. Is this not the explanation partly for our weakness that we don't plead this prayer? And we don't pray, Lord, do this among my family members, among my friends, among people with no church background, that such will be saved and added to the church. He is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or expect, Paul writes in Ephesians. Will you ask him? And this week as we engage in outreach and as we come to the end of the summer and we begin autumn and winter programs and we get back into the tasks that we're doing, let's not just think in terms of we're doing this because we need to do it. We have to justify our existence, as James was saying this morning, in a different context. No, let's do it because we're looking to Christ. We're praying all the time, open hearts.
open homes, open families to the gospel. And as we go out this week and work amongst children and teenagers, as we do the work of the coffee stop, as we do literature distribution tomorrow, uh, let us pray, Lord Jesus, place an open door before us that no one can shut. Now, let's be realistic here and let's not um, think that somehow Christ is promising heaven on earth as we engage in outreach. Um, he's not promising heaven on earth to this church. Look at how he warns her again in verse 10. There's going to come another wave of persecution that is going to sweep through the known world of that day. Because you have kept my command to endure, I will also keep you from, it's be better translated, I will keep you right through the hour of trial that shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Yes, even when Christ is opening doors of opportunity and when the gospel is going through uh, into families and into lives and into communities, there's always opposition. There's always persecution. And the two things are like two sides of the one coin. Sometimes people say, well, you know, why is there so much, why are there so many difficulties in the church? Uh, why are there so many problems? Well, we perhaps shouldn't be discouraged because it's an evidence that Christ is at work. Where there is forward movement, there will be opposition. There will be persecution. Let's notice then finally this evening, and fourthly, that Christ rewards overcomers. Christ rewards overcomers. The church at Philadelphia is weak. The church is persecuted for a witness to Christ. She's promised better times. She's promised alongside those better times, difficult days ahead. And what's the danger? That between now and then, the church will give up. She'll lose heart. She'll lose direction. And perhaps that's the danger you're facing tonight. As an individual Christian, you have worked and laboured. It's nine years today since we moved to Carrie Fergus. Exactly nine years. And we might think, as a congregation, nine years labour. And not a vast amount to see. And the danger is that we begin to say, well, it's not worth all the effort. We'll just ease the throttle back a little bit and we'll just take it at a slower pace, one that's more bearable, and or we just lose heart altogether. Or we say we're too weak to keep going. The opposition is too great to overcome. The task is too big for us to, to pursue. How does Christ encourage his church to keep going? Look at verse 12. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. He who 
overcomes or to the one who overcomes. Philadelphia, as I mentioned earlier, was a city with vast religious buildings. And these temples often had imposing columns or pillars. Very significant. You saw them, they towered uh, into the skyline and uh, you couldn't help but be awed by these pillars. It's a bit like when you go up to Stormont Castle or up to Stormont Building, the big pillars that are there. And the Philadelphia region at the same time was liable to earthquakes. And when the earthquake struck, the buildings toppled and the towering pillars. And that's why uh, there's, a, uh, there's a tradition or um, a, a, a fact that there was only one pillar left in that earthquake of AD 17. Now do you see what Christ is promising to believers who overcome difficulties? Who overcome the earthquakes, if we want to put it like that, that come in personal life? The earthquakes that come in family life. The earthquakes that come in ministry. The earthquakes that come in church life and denominational life. What are we to do? We're to be overcomers. And look at what Christ says he will do for those who overcome these earthquakes. I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. And he shall go out no more. And write my name in him. And her. Uh, in the new Jerusalem. He's saying. I'm going to. I'm going to honour them. I'm going to establish them. I'm going to make them. Significant. In my purpose. And in my kingdom. Forever and ever. And ever. What's the function of pillars? Well, they give strength. They add beauty. And they're load-bearing. And they're solid. And they don't give way when the earthquake comes. And you run into them. You'll not knock them over. Rather, you will come off the worse. And this is what we need in the church today. We need men and women. Young people. We need men and women in the next generation who will be overcomers. We're to be made up of men and women in our congregations and boys and girls who are overcomers. Overcoming disappointment. Overcoming loss. Overcoming setback. Overcoming opposition. Overcoming weakness. Overcoming temptation, overcoming trials, overcoming error and ungodliness. Overcoming our own sinfulness by nature. Christ rejoices in overcomers. Are you an overcomer tonight? 
Look at what awaits the overcomers in heaven. I will make them a pillar in the temple of my God. Pillar of the church. When you think of pillars of the church, who do you think of? Well, imagine we think of Noah. Labouring for 120 years, a preacher building an ark. We think of Abraham. That journey and that life of faith, what over a hundred years, and the end of it, only one son. We think of Sarah, we think of Moses, we think of Joshua, Rahab, David, Ruth, Esther. They're the pillars. And then we come into the New Testament and immediately Galatians 2 comes to mind. Where Paul refers to Peter and John. They're pillars in the church. Yeah, the pillars. And then we come into 16th century. Luther, yeah, he was a pillar. John Calvin, what a pillar. John Knox, what a pillar. <coughs> but have you thought about it from this angle? Christ wants pillars from this generation. From this congregation. From this denomination. In the temple of his father. And to stand for Christ and to live for Christ. In the midst of the challenges and overcoming the difficulties. It means, and we're assured here, that those who do will be pillars. I think it's a wonderful thought to think that in heaven, people not just stop at John Calvin and John Knox. But they'll stop you and me and say, tell me your story. Tell me how God took you out of Adam and put you in Christ and made you a pillar in the church in Carrick Fergus. Larn, Nantes, Galway, and has now made you a pillar in the temple of my God. Let us hear our calling in Christ. It's to triumph in Christ. To be overcomers now. That we will be pillars then. In the temple of our God. What an encouragement. To keep going. When the going is tough. Amen. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Our God and our Father in heaven, we thank you for your blessed Son, our blessed Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. How gentle and how gracious and how patient he is with us. For often we are weak uh, and do not have strength and sometimes it's not our fault, but often it can be our fault. Whether it is or is not, Christ shows the same patience. We thank you that he does not cast aside what is weak in the eyes of the world. He doesn't cast aside individuals or congregations or outreach works where there isn't much strength. 
but where there is faithfulness to him, looking to him and service for him, he's pleased and he's glorified and he will give opportunity. And Lord Jesus, we pray this evening for doors of opportunity for all of us here tonight. Open doors into the lives of individuals within our families who do not yet believe. We can think tonight of those in our families who are not saved. Lord, open the door into their heart and enter in. Think of friends and neighbours. Think of our vast community around us here. We think of our nation. We think of the nations of the earth that are represented here tonight where we serve and labour and those many more not represented. We ask that you would open doors, Lord Jesus, and build your church. Help us not to be discouraged or disheartened by the synagogues of Satan that are still around today and that have lost the focus on Christ or abandoned him altogether or chased him out of the church. We pray that you would help us in this day and generation. Whether we are small in number and weak in strength or whatever, help us to be overcomers. Those who overcome now. Make our children and young people overcomers in this present generation. Help them to overcome the sinful nature, the flesh, the world, the devil. Pray for them as they go into school this week. Help them in the year which lies ahead to be faithful, to overcome the temptations, the subtleties, the sins that are in them and around them. And, O Lord, make us examples as parents of those who overcome. And, Lord, help us to keep on keeping on, knowing that those who overcome will be tillers in the temple of our God. We bless you for our high calling. We bless you for our great privileges. Forgive us for our weakness and our failure and our sin and make us effective in your service. Bless this week which lies ahead and what we do in this town and community. Open doors, save individuals, add to your church. In Jesus' name, Amen.